You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Praise God for, for his work, for the testimonies that we've heard this morning, and every single one of those testimonies is a testament of God's work in the lives of people. We also want to praise God for our team that's in India and the work that they've been doing. And if truth be told, my desire to be in India this morning with Pastor Terry and Andy and Mike and Marcy is only second to being up here and sharing the word with you. It became actually pretty clear for me that I wasn't supposed to be a part of this trip, this mission trip, when my mom passed away in June, and Janet and I had to take this trip to Pakistan, which was a completely out-of-the-blue trip that we had to take. Uh, but once that happened, we knew that I will not be able to go to India. That does not mean that my heart is still not there. So watching the video at the beginning of the service was, was tough because you remember uh, people that you met. This morning, I got, a, got an email from Pastor Terry, and earlier today, he spoke He preached at the church that I had preached at. And so as he said this, I remembered in my mind the pastor, the congregation, the service, and so on. And I I, I know that he's been blessed, and uh, our team has been a blessing to people in in India as well. I do have, uh, I I did take one picture of our team when we were coming back. We were in, uh, in India for almost two weeks. And every single meal was Indian food, which was fantastic for me. But all the Caucasian members of the team, I think by the time we started driving back from Alipurdwar to Siliguri, they were longing for Western food. So we stopped at a, at a mall, and the one thing we saw in there was a subway. <laughs> and of course, Katie, who was 17 and part of our team, she saw the subway sign and she went, Subway. So we had to make a stop, except that we went in, and the first board we see had tandoori chicken sub and butter chicken sub and so on. But then we realized that there was a second sign, and there was the ham sub and a teriyaki chicken sub, the stuff that we get, uh, get here. So that was a moment of joy for, for that team, for sure. But we've been in, uh, in Philippians, and Philippians is a book about joy. It is about a joy that that comes from the Lord and is evident in the life of a church in how we do life. It does not mean that we don't grieve. It means that we have our eyes fixed on eternity, and that's what sets our our foundation. Today is our seventh Sunday together in this book. Next Sunday, Pastor Doug is going to wrap up this, this, uh, this series, and then we will go into Advent and after Advent it will be a series on, past, on uh, David's life that Pastor Terry will be teaching on. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi while he was imprisoned in Rome. And unlike some of his other letters, like the letter to the Galatians or the Colossians, uh, where he t- corrects theology or addresses false teaching, this letter is mostly about his appreciation and his affection for the believer's in Philippi. The church was founded when Paul, Silas, and Timothy arrived in Philippi, went by the riverside, met a bunch of women. Lydia and her family, her household became Christians and founded the church in Philippi. 
This is the church that we are looking at. And the teaching that we've received is applicable to churches across the age and across geographies and across time. It is applicable to us as it was applicable to the Philippian church 2,000 years ago. This letter is filled with some of our favorite one-liners that our, our Christians love to use. For example, in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We use that all the time. Or in chapter 1, verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or the one we have up here, he who began a good work will carry it on to completion. So it's a book that Christians are very familiar with. And when we look at the passage today, we're going to look at chapter 4, verses 2 to 9. At a cursory glance, it seems that it's a hodgepodge of ideas. You sense that, that Paul is running out of parchment, and he wants to cram as much stuff into the letter as he possibly can before he runs out of ink and paper. And so it seems that there are, there are topics like unity and joy and anxiety and peace and prayer and everything else thrown in together and then a bunch of lists at the end. But there is a common theme, a common thread that ties each one of those things together. And that's what we'll discover today. I do want to acknowledge that this morning we are going to talk about stuff like unity in the church. And some of you may have gone through terrible church conflict, conflict that resulted in you leaving a church that you called home, conflict that resulted in relationships that were broken. We're going to look at joy and peace, and that is not where some of us are this morning. As we go through life, we are not experiencing peace. In fact, the only thing we can relate to is anxiety. Or there may be some here that have gone through that stage in life, and this morning are resting in the peace of God that transcends all knowledge. So my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will speak to each one of us as we need. Will you please stand as we read Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 2. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Sintek to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended by my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my family, fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. May God bless his word. Please have a seat. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy are in Philippi. Church is founded. And we have this picture of the church that a, a, a bunch of Christians come together together. 
They have all accepted Jesus Christ and bada boom, bada bang, there's unity. Unfortunately, that is not the case. And that's the situation in Philippi. Two women, Yodia and Syntyche, are in conflict. It is quite possible that these two women were part of the group of women that, Philip, that Paul met by the riverside. It is possible that they were charter members of this church. What is for sure is that they were Christians, they were fellow workers in the ministry, and they were in conflict. They were influential in the church, and they were in conflict. In fact, the conflict was great enough that Paul is concerned about the unity of the Philippian church. We do also know that this conflict is not doctrinal, it's not theological, it's not about false teaching or anything like that, because Paul has a track record of correcting that teaching when that happens. In other letters, when he sees heresy being preached, when he talks about false teachers, or when he discovers the entry of false teaching into the church, he doesn't pussyfoot around that. He tackles it headlong and corrects it. But in this case, all he does, he talks about two women who are in conflict. But the conflict is great enough that he's asking them to be of the same mind in the Lord and also seek mediation. As he asks one of the other believers in the church to seek restoration and reconciliation in the body. The Bible does not tell us about the nature of their conflict, and that's a good thing. Because if we knew what the conflict was, then we will have ministries established that dealt with that type of conflict. All it talks about is conflict. A church divided is a church without influence. A church divided is a church without any effectiveness. A church divided loses her ability to influence the culture. And worst of all, a church divided brings harm to the message of the gospel and to the name of Jesus Christ. It is quite possible that this church in Philippi was the only beacon of hope in a city of hopelessness and despair. It is possible that it was the only message of freedom in a conquered colony. It was the only light in an otherwise dark place. It is possible that without Philippian church, the name of Jesus Christ may never have been heard in that city. That has not changed in the last 2,000 years. The church is still the only place that can point the world to the real Savior. Our geography may have changed. Our times may have changed. Our medium to deliver the message may have changed. But the message itself has never changed. And the need for that message has never changed. The church today, this church today, is here because God has a plan for the people around this church. And so when conflict happens in the church, the local church cheapens the gospel. It puts scars that affect the beauty of Jesus Christ. Conflict in, in Bible-based churches like ours actually takes on a very interesting form. 
because we all believe, because we are all here for a reason, we are united against in some doctrinal truths that are found in this book. We agree that there are doctrinal truths that we all come around. And so if you look at our church's statement of beliefs, if you've been into our, one of our orientation sessions, you would have gone through this already. But this is what our church believes. This is our statement of beliefs. We believe the Bible is God's word. We believe in the one living, true, and triune God. We believe God created an order of spiritual beings called angels. We believe God created man in his own image. We believe salvation is redemption by Christ of the whole person. We believe the church is the body of Christ, which, of which Christ is the head. We believe in re- religious liberty. We believe that Christians are salt and light. We believe that God in his own time will bring all things to their appropriate end. We believe that marriage is a covenant relationship between one man and one woman. And we affirm that the family is the basic unit of society. We believe these things. These are black and white truths in this book. And so we don't have a conflict when it comes to these beliefs. In fact, I would suggest that if we ever feel that there was an assault on these beliefs, on this, this set of doctrines, we will unite against that. We will stand against that as one. And so the conflict that happens in a Bible-believing church is actually surrounded around much, much smaller and petty things. We have conflict when we embark on big projects. We have conflict when we want to do ministry or we want to change how ministry is done. And we have examples of conflict like that in the Bible where Paul and Barnabas ended up in a conflict. Barnabas wanted to bring John Mark on the missionary journey. Paul did not like the idea. The two of them had a massive conflict. They split their ways. Their disagreement was not on the doctrine. Their disagreement was on how to do ministry. And years later, Paul acknowledges the work that God did in John Mark's life because of that split and called him a useful partner in the ministry of God. So there are times in lives of churches where conflict happens because of disagreement on how ministry ought to be done. There are also times when conflict happens when I become focused on me. When my personal preference and my personal choices become more important than the unity of the church. And so when that happens, you will hear me make statements like this. I love the glass squares that we used to have on the wall. I hate these black curtains. Or you will hear me say this. They don't sing enough old old hymns here. Or the flip side of that would be, they sing too many old hymns here. Or the pastor didn't come to visit me when I broke my nail. Petty, 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 ineffective, ineffectual fluff. That's what that is. And my hope, sincerely, I know that I'm in a life group where the guys are pretty 
rough and tumble type of guys. But my hope, my hope is that if I ever throw a temper tantrum because of what I like over the unity of the church, then someone in this congregation will take me to the back alley, lovingly, (laughs) and say this, get over it. It's not about you. It's about the church. And it's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have courage to speak that truth into the lives of those around you. And have courage to hear that truth when someone speaks that to you. After the first service, Terrence Wynn, who's our, uh, who is here today, he was playing bass guitar. He's a police officer. He volunteered to take me to the back alley anytime he felt that. <laughs> it's completely unnecessary, but I'm sure he'll do a fine job. <laughs> the third and probably the most dangerous way that conflict happens in the church is when it is surrounded in holy things. What are holy things? These are doctrines. Doctrines that we become very enamored with. Doctrines that are our pet peeve. And so when I, as a believer, have a favorite doctrine, and Chris, as a believer, does not, then I take it upon myself to correct Chris's theology. I basically tell the Holy Spirit, you know what, you're not doing a good enough job. Let me step in and do it for you. That's not my role, and that is not my responsibility. That is the job of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you an example. There are Christians in this congregation who are young earth creationists. Young earth creationists believe that you can figure out the age of the earth by looking at the genealogies, all, add up all the ages, and you get 6,000 years as the age of the earth. There are also Christians in this congregation who are not young earth creationists. They are old earth creationists. At this point, the young earth creationists go, there are Christians who do not believe in young earth, and they make it their mission to convert them all to be young earth creationists. Let me tell you this. When I take my last breath and stand before the Lord, I don't think God's going to say, were you a young earth creationist or an old earth creationist? Because that's what's going to get you in. Let me summarize this. This whole book is filled with doctrine. All doctrine is true. But there is one doctrine that is the foundation of it all and is above all. And that is this. God created man. Man sinned and was separated from God. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. He was raised on the third day and is now seated in heaven. It is because of him alone that mankind can be reconciled with the holy God. Without the saving work of Jesus Christ, there is no reconciliation and no salvation. If you don't start with that doctrine, then we have a problem. That is the only doctrine upon which a church should split. If there is heresy preached, from the pulpit, and Jesus Christ 
is defamed and demeaned, then that's the time to walk away from that church. We had an instance at our church almost nine, ten years ago. We, uh, we were searching for a senior pastor. This is before Pastor Terry's time. We were searching for a senior pastor, and we had uh, some guest speakers who would come in. So we had a fine young scholar coming in for two Sundays. First Sunday he came in, he did a great job of, of uh, preaching. The second Sunday he came in, and he started with this. The topic of my message is this. Mistakes that Jesus made. And I said, pardon? In fact, I remember Pastor Terry and Pat and their kids were back from Bolivia for a visit. And they came to visit our church that Sunday. And we have a guest speaker who stands up and delivers a message on mistakes that Jesus made. Well, I can tell you that he's never been invited back because that's contradictory to what this church believes. The only time, the only time you must stand firm on doctrine within the church is when the doctrine of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ is questioned. So how does a church attain and maintain unity? I think the answer is very simple. It's given in verse 2, and it's this. I plead with Judea and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Agree with each other, the Greek translation and some of the other English translations translated more accurately. It is being of the same mind in the Lord. That happens when each and every believer places their relationship with Jesus Christ and growing into more likeness with Jesus Christ as the highest priority in their life. And so, as each one of us, I'll share this triangle with you, when Janet and I were going through premarital counseling, it was Pastor Terry and Pat who did that, which in itself was a fantastic experience. (laughs) There are too many stories, we won't go there. But he drew this uh, triangle, when two people come together, they start with a relationship that already exists between them and Jesus Christ. As time progresses, and as the Holy Spirit grows each person into maturity towards Jesus Christ, something remarkable happens. The distance between the people becomes smaller. You're not trying to work towards your spouse. You're working towards Jesus Christ. That's the same truth that applies to a church. If each and every believer is working towards and in partnership with the Holy Spirit, leading towards a greater likeness in Jesus Christ, then the unity automatically happens within the church. Well, we're going to keep, keep moving on. In verses 4 and on, Paul talks about joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Joy is a theme that's constantly present in this book. It is a a theme that is very much tied into the saving work of Jesus Christ. Unlike the Old Testament, where most of the words that translate as joy or to rejoice, they're all about action. Clapping, raising your hands, doing the actions, uh, 
having a, a banquet as a, as a group of believers. In the New Testament, the word rejoice is primarily used in the context of God's saving act and the hope of the future that belongs to a Christian because of Jesus Christ. It is also interesting that the two topics that Paul picks up in these coming verses are found in the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 23 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. And goes on to name a few others. A person receives joy when they submit their life to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells in their, in their life. And as part of that, give them a gift of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit has joy as one of its main components. The problem comes in when we equate joy to happiness, which is a very, very, very common worldly thing to do. But the church somehow, sometimes, buys into that as well. So happiness means that I have an emotional, instantaneous response to an external stimulus. Something that happened in my life, some event, people, things that make me happy. So when the Buffalo Sabres beat the Leafs 6-2, it makes me sad. (laughs) But when the Leafs beat Bruins 6-1, it makes me happy. Because I'm responding to my circumstances and what's happening around me. Is it even possible to have a joyless Christian? Is it even possible to have a Christian that doesn't exhibit joy? One of the studies that's going on downstairs in the mornings at 9 o'clock is fighting for joy. The joy that comes and is a gift from God to a Christian. How do you fight for that? Rejoicing, unlike happiness, is an outward expression of an inward gift that we have received from God. The presence of joy in our lives, as I mentioned earlier, does not mean that we become happy-go-lucky people just going about life. It doesn't mean that we become hippies and we have no serious concern about life. Joy means that we treat life seriously with our eyes focused on eternity. And it is with that, as Cheryl said, that we can mourn with those who mourn and grieve with those who grieve and rejoice with those who rejoice. Because our life here on earth is just temporary, but our joy is based in eternity. Paul moves on to talk about peace. In verses... Six and on, six and seven, he says this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This was probably one of the toughest parts parts of this passage to deal with. And I wish this morning that I had the TARDIS. We could all file into it, Go back about seven years when Pastor Ralph did this seven-week series on peace. Attend all those seven sermons and come back a minute from now. I wish that were possible. Because peace that comes from God is again a concept that the world doesn't grasp. And we can't grasp if 
we look towards the world for it. The anxiety that Paul refers to actually means being pulled apart. It means that your mind is being pulled apart by cares and concerns and worries in your life. But the peace of God, as Pastor Alf used to say, shalom is peace in the midst of the storm. It is not the absence of the storm. It is you in the eye of the storm. There's an example or a story in in, uh, the Gospel of Matthew where the disciples have been sent off. They're going across the lake. A storm rises up and they're fighting hard, fighting at the oars to keep the boat afloat and to stay alive. And then they see Jesus walking by. And in the midst of that storm, Peter calls out to Jesus and asks if he can come for a walk. And of course, Jesus has come. Peter steps out of the boat onto the water and starts to walk because his eyes are fixed on Jesus. The storm is still there, but his eyes are fixed on Jesus. And as soon as he takes his eyes off Jesus and onto the storm and the winds and the waves, as the Bible says, he starts to sink. But graciously enough, Jesus Christ reaches down and grabs his hand. You know, that's a picture, that's a picture of you and I, Peter. Far too often, far too often, we take our eyes off the Savior and we look at the circumstance. We take our eyes off eternity and we look at the temporary. Jesus talked about worry. And in Matthew, in the, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Why are you worried about what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will be clothed in? I take care of the sparrows of the earth. The grass is dressed better than King Solomon. Would I not take care of you? And so he says, when we are worried, not to worry. When we are anxious, not to be anxious. The Bible says, cast all your anxiety on him, all your worries on him, because he cares for you. St. Clair Ferguson says this, within the space of three verses, Paul appears to present us with two impossible tasks, constant rejoicing and rejection of anxiety. But the two are related. The joyful person is not likely to be dominated by anxiety, and the anxiety-ridden spirit cannot be a joyful one. The prescription is prayer. Anxiety cannot continue to breathe easily in an atmosphere suffused with prayer. Paul is speaking about the careful, patient spreading of our needs before God, detailing our situation and our anxieties. This is what it means to cast our burdens on the Lord in the assurance that he will sustain us, end quote. And so how is a Christian, how is a Christian to do this? And I guess Paul provides a prescription for that in verse 8. He gives a list of things to think on. Paul is very concerned and absolutely sold on the idea that what you think defines who you are. What you think determines your spiritual growth. And so he says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about such things. 
fill your mind with things that pass that checklist. It is only when we focus on the good things that we feel the joy that God plants in us. Paul is stressing the point that the state of our thought life is directly proportional and critically important for our spiritual well-being. A mind that is focused on noble thoughts naturally tends to rejoice in the goodness of God and is therefore incapable of being anxious. In the modern world, you receive the teaching to empty yourself, and that's not what God wants you to do. Our teaching is to fill our minds and think about things that follow that list that Paul provides. And how do we do that? It is by allowing ourselves to be taught and trained by this book, sitting under the submission of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As we wrap up, allow me to to just flip this passage of Scripture around. We started with unity in the church, and we talked about individual believers and our own growth and our own thought life and our own spiritual journey towards Christ. So let me build this from the ground up as an individual. Let me, re- let me paraphrase this. Since the God of peace is with you, the believer, your thought life should focus on things that are noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. And now that your mind is filled with these things and the peace of God that comes from the God of peace is in you, there is no room for anxiety in your life. And since there is no anxiety in your thought life, your response to everything is filled with divine joy. Now finally, since all believers are filled with peace of God, focused on all things noble, have a joyful attitude and demeanor, there is unity in the body of Christ. The unity in the body of Christ is directly tied to each individual believer's walk towards Christ. I'm going to ask Pastor Ralph to say the benediction as we close the service. And after the benediction, we're free to go. My son Stephen uh, wrote a song out of a dream. In the dream, he'd been in a very vicious battle. He felt that the battle was lost, and he was lying on the ground unconscious. And then there was a gentle hand that touched him and lifted up his head just enough for him to see the battle. And they had won. We started with one of our songs, He Lifteth Up Our Head. I said last week, I've been thinking about all the things that I'll face in the judgment throne of God. And as I've talked with God, there's been this nice little voice that said, now rewrite all of what you've thought in terms of the grace of God. All my failures in terms of the grace of God. All my struggles. And then out of that comes this incredible, overwhelming joy and peace and spirit of unity. Shall we stand?
O you who in the glories of heaven see everything about us, the little squabbles, the stuff that makes our lives miserable, the pettiness, and we all have that. We come to you and admit them. And then you ask us to rewrite them in terms of the grace of God, how they're forgiven, how we're given a new hope. We don't have to live that way anymore because we know your peace and we're overwhelmed with joy. Oh God, today we just want to say thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Amen.